125, and there's something you may not know about me. Some of you will know this, but uh, I've mentioned this before. When I was a teenager, I used to do some skateboarding. Now, uh, I won't do that this morning, so I don't end up um, heading, into, uh, heading into the rest of my life broken. But there was something that was really scary as a part of skateboarding, and that uh, is dropping in. And I'm going to explain what dropping in is. And so if you look at the screen here, you'll see just what that's about. So dropping in is when you go into a ramp. And so you're standing at the top, and you have to go from standing to going onto this ramp. And it's really important you do that correctly. And I'm going to read you the tutorial from skatedeluxe.com. So number one, to drop into a ramp, place your tail on the coping or the very top part of the ramp there and put your back foot on it. So now stand. So uh, image number two there, next image. Stand with all your weight on the tail. So you need to have all your weight back here so that it's on the back of the board so that you're just uh, going to be standing properly while your front foot is positioned on the bolts of your front truck. So these are your, your trucks over top of the wheels is an easy way to say that so that when you transfer your weight, you're going to be safe. While you drop in, image number three, while dropping in, it's very important to shift your weight to the front wheels or the front trucks to lean your body forward. And at the beginning, this is the scariest part because you're going from standing on kind of the way Jake talked about solid ground to really being unsure as you lean forward. And you need to make sure that you transfer your weight appropriately because if you get scared and you only transfer a little bit, you're going to end up rolling down the ramp on your back wheels and falling backwards. And the final image there, so while it's important to transfer all your weight forward, you need to make sure that you tra don't over transfer because if you do that when you go down, you're going to fall end over end. And so in order to do all of this correctly, you just need to have confidence. And I remember uh, there was a skate park in Waterloo, and I'd done some smaller ramps and stuff, but this one had a ramp that was uh, close to seven feet high, and I'd never done anything like that before. And it took me a long time to get the confidence up to transfer my weight the way you need to so that you don't fall backwards or fall forwards. And in life, as in skateboarding, confidence is really important. And to be confident in what you're standing on or what you're rolling on, you just need to know you can trust your footing. And to the degree that you've fallen before and failed before, that's the degree to which you may trust things more. And this particular psalm, Psalm 125, is a little bit different than some of the other psalms of ascent. So far in each of these, or in many of them, there's been this sense of encouraging people to trust the Lord. So in case you haven't been here for any of the Psalms of Ascent, these are a group of psalms in the middle of the book of songs, uh, psalms that would be sung on the way to feasts and festivals from all over Israel or outside Israel on the way to Jerusalem. Each one has a different theme. And many of them are to encourage people to trust or place their confidence in the Lord. This one, however, is different because it has confidence already. It assumes confidence. It's something meant to be sung by the people walking and traveling to encourage them in the confidence they already have and to grow in that trust or that confidence. And for us as a church in New Testament times, it's a picture of the 
security and the blessing and the protection that we have in Christ. And there's three movements in this psalm. The first is that of protection, and so the author talks about protection. The second is triumph over evil, and the final one is that of peace. And so absolutely, we want to be protected you know, by the Lord. We want to see uh, God triumph over evil in our life and in the world in general, and we want peace. We want not just peacefulness, but ultimately peace in Christ that will come in its fullness when Christ returns, makes all things new, and when those who follow Jesus live with him forever in heaven. That is perfect peace. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 25. We're going to read it together piece by piece. We'll just look at the first two verses um, in the New Living Translation. So read along with me. Those who trust in the Lord are as secure as Mount Zion. They will not be defeated, but will endure forever. Just as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forever. So Jerusalem is called Mount Zion, and the history and origin of, you know, this name Mount Zion is a a little bit of a mystery. We know that it was something historically that they called this area, and, and the Israelites adopted a little bit. But the word itself may mean tower or stronghold, but eventually Israel used some terms interchangeably about Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, name of the city for sure. Mount Zion, kind of the the hill that Jerusalem and eventually the temple would sit on. And then they would call it the city of David because David established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Now here uh, you'll see on on your screen an aerial photo of Jerusalem. And uh, circled there is, is the temple and kind of main part. And I want you to look around. So you may not be able to see from the perspective in this image that you know, Jerusalem sits on a hill or a mountain uh, above things around it. And then surrounding that are other mountains. And to the east is the Mount of Olives. If you've read the New Testament, you recognize that name. To the north is Mount Scopus. And then there's other mountains to the south and to the west. Some of them have names we recognize, others not. But the way it was situated was that if enemies were going to come and attack, they had to scale these higher mountain ranges, go down into valleys and back up to Jerusalem, which was not as high as the other mountains around it. And so it's a picture geographically of a protection. And so what this author is saying is that the way Mount Zion is protected by these mountains, surrounded, so we are surrounded by God. And it's important to know that Mount Zion itself, that name actually carried particular significance for the Israelite people. Though it's used interchangeably with the others, when it's used, there's a particular meaning that they're calling up. And Mount Zion to them was more than just a hill, more than just a mountain that that, uh, Jerusalem was built on or part of. Um, It's a symbol to Israel of God's protection. So uh, when you said Jerusalem, you know, it would, they knew where it was when you say city of David, but When you say Mount Zion, that's specifically used to often refer to God's presence and how through his presence he gives protection. He gives protection and his presence to his people and Mount Zion is an image of that. So how do we translate that to the church? So we don't think of the church or 
our church or the church globally as a particular one place, geographically. We just don't think of that as, you know, the author of this has traveling to Jerusalem. We don't travel to one geographical place. So how do we translate this for us to apply? Well, while we don't have that, in the same way that these Israelites would view Jerusalem and Mount Zion, city of David, as surrounded and protected by the Lord, so we see the church, the people of God, not the physical building, but the people of God, those who are followers of Jesus, are protected in the same way by God. And he transfers that protection through Jesus Christ to us. So let's keep reading, starting at verse 3. We'll look at verse 3, 4, and 5. Read with me. The wicked will not rule the land of the godly, for then the godly might be tempted to do wrong. O Lord, do good to those who are good, whose hearts are in tune with you, but banish those who turn to crooked ways. O Lord, take them away with those who do evil. And we're going to stop there. We'll pick up the rest of verse 8 in a moment. Um, There's a play on words here in Hebrew. And uh, the way it would go out if it's translated literally as something along the lines is, just as God sits enthroned forever, so may the wicked not rule in that way. And it, it links into the idea that mountains are lasting. And so when we read in Scripture that, you know, faith can move mountains, or in Old Testament, you know, that the mountains are shaken, to these people, mountains were unmovable. Like, we have dynamite and things that can, you know, make a tunnel through mountains and do things. They, they weren't that. I mean, there are archaeological things built by hand in, in antiquity that we're amazed by, but it's not the same as what we have now. Mountains were unmovable, and they were a picture to ancient people of that unfailingness, that strength. And so these people would see that God's rule and reign was forever. May the wicked not rule like you. In fact, some versions say the scepter of the wicked will not endure. So a scepter is that, that often golden rod that kings would hold as a sign and seal of their authority and kingship. May the scepter of the wicked not endure. And, and there's a sense here that though the wicked may rule for a time, their rule would not endure. Ultimately, this is still true because Jesus is Messiah in the line of King David. And when he died and rose again and ascended, he became the forever king of God's kingdom. And so the scepter of the wicked will not rule. This is prophetic in a way. And so though there were kings who were wicked for a time, ultimately God has his way. It's a really neat picture of both God's sovereignty and how he honors our free will. And it's, it's a both-and scenario here because it's hard to determine when you read something like this and you can say, well, why, why would God allow evil kings? After this time, after the time of David, there are many wicked kings who ruled, but they ruled for a time. And it seems like what God was saying is that the way he would protect his people, the way he would keep his reign was through commands that people were to follow. And he wouldn't supersede the will of a wicked king or people, but he would also work against it over time so that their influence would not spread. 
And so then this author talks about reaping what you sow. May good happen to those who do good. May you, know, may you banish those who do evil. That word banish might give us a, a little pause for you know, consideration because it doesn't, doesn't sound like a very gracious, gracious thing to pray, a very gracious thing to sing for people on the way to Jerusalem, a very gracious thing for us to read and wish. God, would you banish evil people? those who have wicked influence. And this is specifically not just over those who are, are evil or don't follow God's ways. This is first starting with those who have influence or authority. Wicked rulers who influence others who could be wicked too. And, and even within the psalm, it says you know, that the, the impact or the consequences for those who cause wickedness and for those who follow, turn aside, go on crooked paths, it will be the same thing. So... God, may you banish this so that many who are good, meaning not being good, it's not salvation by works or anything like that, but those who are following God and doing his good will, may they not be turned aside. So where's the grace in this then? If we're to banish evil, where's the grace? In, in 1 Corinthians 5, we get a bit of picture of this. And Paul tells the Corinthian church to remove in particular a sinful man. And in 2 Corinthians, we read uh, that Paul really struggled with writing that letter because it was a hard thing to teach. But what he's saying in 1 Corinthians, specifically in chapter 5, is that that community, that church family, was being so negatively influenced towards accepting sin that they needed to not meet with this particular person. That sounds a little harsh. Where, where's Grace? You know, what about reaching lost people? How, how does this work out? If we're, if we're looking at a psalm that says, God, may you banish evil people, what do we do with a world that doesn't follow Jesus? What do we do with hearts that aren't bent towards God? Well, Paul makes it, it clear as well, because later there is restoration for this man. But the determining factor there was to do with repentance. It was to do with repentance. So there is grace, but there needs to be repentance. Oftentimes when we think about grace, what we primarily think about is mercy. That uh, we overlook sin. We sweep it under the carpet. Can, can I make a bold statement? You're not going to say yes or no, so I'm just going to do it. Jesus didn't tolerate sin. He loved people, but he died for sin. He went ultimately the most radical thing that could be done to conquer sin, he died. Because sin's consequence leads to death, and he took that on himself. Grace does not mean accepting, being okay with, receiving, overlooking sin, ever. It didn't happen with Jesus. It shouldn't happen with us as the church. What grace does mean is that we confront and recognize sin for what it is, but we help with a pathway to restoration and transformation that doesn't involve condemnation. Grace is not about accepting sin and it's okay and let's just you know, let everyone do whatever they want because it's okay and God will figure it out eventually. When you read the New Testament letters, that is not the sense of Paul and Peter and James and John. They deal with sin and show us how to avoid it so we're not harmed and ruined. We talked about that multiple times in the past few weeks. Here's my definition of grace. And uh, I've preached on this a few times. There's a series from 2020 called Good Grace. That's where we first said this. 
But God's grace is, it's, it's God's love for us and power in us to save us and empower us to live for him. So it's God's love for us, okay, to save us, right, and work in us so that we're empowered to do what he wants us to do. It's about transformation. Grace that only offers mercy without transformation is it's cheap grace. It's false grace. We are saved by grace, and we receive that grace through faith. So how on earth do we know when to restore someone and when to limit their influence? Remember, this is speaking primarily of someone of influence. And what had happened in the Corinthian church is that there was a man who was doing things with his mother-in-law, stepmom, sorry, a stepmother, that ought not to be done, that even the pagan people around, and I use that word because that's what they would have been referred to in that time. Pagan people at the time looked down upon. The church was looked down upon by society because they welcomed this man and what he was doing, thinking they were really reaching the lost. And they had it all backwards. And Paul is saying, look, what's going to happen is that this these forms of sexual sin that even the world around you says, that's wrong, <laughs> like, that's wrong, and you're not confronting it, it will open the door for others to do similar things and say, well, if we allow that, then we should allow this and allow this. And Paul is saying, look, you need to be really clear. We need to confront it, and we need to give a path forward. So how on earth do we know when to restore someone and when to rebuke? What's, what's the determining factor? Well, I can't give you a, a hard, fast line, but let me just suggest something. We all know that there's a difference in lying about taking a cookie from the kitchen and killing someone. Can we agree on that? Sin is sin, right? But I would suggest that in this world, the consequences and the punishment for taking a cookie from the kitchen when, you know, the person cooking or your mom or whoever it is says don't take a cookie is going to be much worse than killing someone. We know that in our hearts. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to know that. We know the difference. And so the response to sin within the church needs to be similar. There is sin that is more minor in consequence and less likely to influence others to do the same. And there are great sins that have greater cause to cause others to fall. So, for example, when a leader falls sexually, we see that in the media over the past number of years, in all sorts of churches, the ripple effects of that are wide-reaching, right? We know that's serious and needs to be dealt with. A church who has its leader who is, you know, having affairs and all sorts of stuff like that and says, eh, we just like him. We like her it's okay. You'd shake your head. And that's exactly what the Corinthian church was doing. And so we can't have a hard, fast rule. But when we see this word, banish wickedness from among us, that's what this psalm is saying. And as they're going to Jerusalem, they're very aware of the surrounding protection of God for the neighboring nations. But these phrases are talking about protect us from within. Because within the Israelite people, within the Jewish people, there are those who did not have a heart after God. 
and we're trying to influence people towards idolatry and all sorts of other practices that would take them ultimately away from God. And we look at the history of Israel and whoever the king is and whatever the king was doing and his leaders, that's what the nation would do. And that's exactly what this is saying. As they're gathering for feasts and festivals, they're saying, God, may our heart be set on you. Bless or do good to those who are following you well. Let their influence just pour out. May they experience your blessing and protection. May the consequences and results of their pure hearts ripple and expand beyond what we could ever imagine. But to those who are influencing others to turn aside from you, to go to crooked paths, banish them, end this evil, stop this wickedness. In fact, Jesus talked about this. He was speaking with his disciples and he said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and religious leaders. And the disciples uh, thought he was talking about bread, right? Because yeast is that thing that makes bread rise and he had to correct them and say, no, no. What I mean is the false teachings of these religious leaders, the legalism, the way they keep people from coming to God, all the stuff that they're teaching that is wrong and all the hypocrisy in their own lives where they say, do as I say, but don't do as I do. I can do what I want. That spreads like yeast through dough. It spreads like wildfire. The thing we want spread within our church is peace, grace, love, purity, and ultimate holiness. If we even had a measure of the understanding of how other and how holy God was, is, sorry, uh, it, it would impact our heart on how terrible sin is and how much it keeps us from being human the way God intended, how much we are marred and broken by sin. And so this psalm really gets to the heart of that. But why is all this important? Why does it matter to say, you know, God, those who trust in you have the protection around them. You surround them from dangers outside. And God, may you, those whose hearts are pure and following me, may you internally protect us as well. May you keep our church family. May you keep our community from great evil, from being turned aside. Jesus said it this way, that those who teach a little one, so children and those who are young in the faith, to sin and make allowance for it, show it by their actions and encourage others to go, that's not a big deal. The Bible talks about that, but it doesn't really mean that. Those who teach children and young in the faith to sin be better for them to have a millstone, a big giant stone tied around their neck and be tossed in the sea and drowned. It's a serious thing. Jesus took sin seriously. He died so that sin would not reign. Why is all this important? Because of the last few words of this psalm. The ending of verse 8 says this, and we're going to read it together. Ready? May Israel have peace. Now, out of context, that may again, lead me to preach about, you know, Israel and end times and the restoration of the Jewish people. And there will be, according to what I understand in prophecy, uh, the Jewish people, a return back to God. There will be some sort of a, a renewal of those who are currently following the old law and the Jewish customs to realizing that Jesus is Messiah and there will be a return. And so we should pray for that as we should pray for all people to follow Jesus. But if our only takeaway from this psalm is to look backwards and then look forwards and pray for peace in Israel, because it seems like a terrible place to live as far as I'm 
concerned. I've not been there, but when I look at the conflict that is always there, it's significant. So should we pray for peace in Israel? Absolutely. Is that the point for us as a church? I don't think so. I think we need to look beyond just the context in which this was written and look beyond some of the context of the prophetic. Ultimately, peace comes through Jesus beyond Jerusalem. Think about what Jesus said. He instructed his first followers to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came so that they could take this message of peace with God, reconciliation with God, freedom from sin through a new covenant because of Jesus' blood, his righteousness, his sacrifice, and his resurrection from Jerusalem to Samaria, a place close by, and to the ends of the earth. The peace of Christ is the point here. And so we pray that in the same way as Jerusalem became the center of people coming in year after year to celebrate feasts and festivals to get their hearts right with God so that they would rest and trust in the same way as we have confidence if I'm writing this and in order to not get hurt and to do it well, I have to have confidence in my ability, confidence in the board, confidence in doing the right things and on the surroundings, so too I can have confidence in Jesus. I can have confidence. Where are some areas in your life you lack trust or you lack confidence in God? Because it tends to be we lack confidence. It's, it's very simple to say, trust in the Lord. And may those who trust in the Lord experience his protection and his presence. And it's great and it's true and it's wonderful. But in the nuts and bolts and daily stuff of life, if you have times of disappointment, if you have times of struggle, if there are times where God just didn't seem to come through the way you wanted, you may struggle in confidence or trust in the Lord. Here's something I know to be true. God works best where we lack most. God works best where we lack most. Paul says it like this, you know, those things that are weakness, God can make strength. Where we lack confidence or trust in the Lord, when we bring that to him, guess what he does? He gives us strength. He helps us to trust again. He gives us confidence. This is still a really poor illustration, but in the same way as, you know, like when I would drop in and fall and I really hurt myself once, I really hurt myself and I was down and out for three or four weeks, it took me a great deal of confidence, a great deal of time to work back up to be able to trust that I could not get injured and trust that the thing, the bad thing that happened to me once would not happen again. Philippians 4.13 says this, for I can do everything. It's important we, we read this correctly, okay? For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength, or I can do all things. This doesn't mean you can do anything you want, right? Jesus is my homeboy. He's gonna, you know, give me everything I need. I want to be an astronaut and like, you know, or I'm gonna be a professional artist and you can't draw. Probably that's not going to happen. Sometimes miracles happen and we have books and stuff that talk about that. What this verse is really saying is I can do everything God has for me. It might be you're all of a sudden an artist and you're not. But likely in who you are, he's got things for only you to do and it's already evident. 
I can do everything. I don't have the confidence and trust in God to do in me and through me because Christ gives me strength. God works best where we lack most. I can do these things. I can trust again. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord for their strength will be in Him. The presence of Jesus in our lives is better than the presence of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in the temple of Jerusalem where they would travel. It was temporary. They looked forward to what we have. You can live confidently in Jesus. You can live confidently in Jesus because He is with you and He protects you. This is why we can be confident. This is why we can have trust even when we have gaps even when we have doubts, even when we have hurts, and we're concerned because Jesus is with us and he's for us. You can live confidently. You can trust in the Lord is another way to say that, in Jesus, because he's with you. He's in your heart. For those who have believed in, received, confessed sin, repented of that, turned their hearts around and receive the gift of new life. For those who follow Jesus, this is just the case. And a lot of our experience of peace is because we lack trust. And we don't have the faith to place that in Jesus. So let me ask you this. There are so many different places you can be secure in in your life. Place your confidence. You can place it in where you live. Canada is a great place. It is. It's a great country to live. Um, but the reality is that Jerusalem was a great place to live too. Do you know how many times it was overthrown? Finally in AD 70, like the temples destroyed and they were overthrown. Canada changes. Changes all the time. There may be a day where we can't meet as a church. There may be war. There may, who knows what? If you place your confidence in following Jesus because the church you understand and know right now exists the way it does and you think that's exactly how God wants it, that's not much confidence. If you place confidence in your rulers, it doesn't matter if it's a politician or a party, a pastor, someone in authority over you, who you're, you just trust them to set everything up so you can have peace. They can't. <laughs> it's out of their control. For a season, they may rule and they may rule well, they may make good decisions, but... That eventually ends if you place your trust in your friends, even in your church family, right? People decide things all the time, make poor choices. Sometimes very faithful people fall and take them a long time of restoration. I talked about pastors who fall and, and the ripple effects of people who walk away from faith because the spiritual leaders they look to for confidence and strength have fallen and it makes their faith. Please don't put your faith in Jesus because of me, okay? Or... Or follow Jesus because of the way I follow Jesus, right? We can't trust in a politician or a pastor or someone else to give us the stability and confidence we need to follow God. You have, as a follower of Jesus Christ in you, and you have direct access to God the Father. We reconcile with Him. You don't need anything else. Our confidence and security for daily life, our confidence and security for daily life can't be in any of the people or situations we're in right now. Instead, uh, this author reminds the people to sing this, and I remind us to read it and make it our own, that our confidence is in the presence and protection of Jesus who gives us his peace. When we place confidence in Jesus, 
When we place confidence, confidence in Jesus, we experience his peace. The peace of Jesus helps us live with confidence because his presence is so real and we experience his protection. And the more we experience his pre- presence, the more we experience his protection, the more we experience peace. And the more we experience that peace of Christ, and the peace of Christ does not mean no trouble, no bad things are happening. It means we are connected to him and we know he's got this, even and especially in the middle of trial. Colossians 3.15 says this, And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body you're called to live in peace and always be thankful. The peace that God wants us to have He's placed in the hearts of his followers already. So it will impact our lives, our households, our church family, and the world. And eventually, the full peace of Christ will come when he returns. And what that means is that sin and death and trouble have been dealt with, severed, gotten rid of, altogether over those who are his own. And his peace means that we don't have to worry about the power of sin. Because we're his forever. When he returns again, resurrects his followers, and makes all things new, the peace of Christ comes into its fullness. The reason this psalm ends on the peace of God is because that's the whole point. That's the narrative of Scripture. We're moving towards peace, and while we're waiting, we're in his kingdom. That's now, because we have the peace of Christ in our heart. We can experience it, maybe not in its fullness, but in a pretty full way, but it's not yet because there is still the power of sin. And there are still those who do not follow Jesus who we have the opportunity as we experience peace, as we experience the presence of Jesus, as we experience his protection to welcome others in to experience that as well. And so Paul says in Colossians, as members of one body, unity, right, we should have peace here with one another. We should learn to be peaceful. That doesn't mean we don't have trouble, we don't have struggle, we don't have disagreements. It means we know how to work this stuff out and we are different because the peace of Christ rules in our heart. So we should pray for peace, not in Jerusalem, but as they prayed for peace in Jerusalem, the center of their religion and social life, we should pray that peace would rule in our hearts and in the heart of our church family so our world might know it. Trust in the Lord. Pray for the peace of Christ to rule and reign. You can live confidently. You can live assuredly. You can live with full trust in the Lord because he is with you and he protects you. We're going to head into a time of communion. So if you don't have your emblems, I'm going to ask Chrissy to come up. She's going to play quietly in a moment. And so um, what I want us to do while she comes up is go through the awkwardness of opening these things, okay? It's rattly and crackly. They're just more sanitary. Uh, there is a top layer and a bottom layer. You open the bread, and then you can open the cup a little bit. Hold the bread in your hand. And I'm going to read some scripture, but this will just make our time a little bit better. And if you have kids with you, today is a great time to explain in a little bit more detail than I can up here what we're doing, why we do it, and if they are ready. And if you don't have the emblems, you can go to the back. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 gives instructions that were passed on to him of how to remember what the Lord has done 
in order that we might have the peace of Christ ruling and reigning in our life, in order that we might be made new. And he says this, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. This was a symbol from the Old Testament, changed and made central on Christ. So Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup of wine after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant. It's a new way to God. New way for peace between God and his people. This cup of wine after supper, this is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself. That's why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. What does it mean to examine yourself? What does it mean to eat and drink this worthily? Does it mean you don't, don't have any sin in your life? Like only those who have no sin. You didn't do any sin this week. You're good to go. Could, couldn't possibly mean that. There's sin in our lives we're not even aware of that God has yet to reveal to us. I mean, the stuff you're aware of, you should confess and repent. Absolutely. And now's a good time. What it means is this is just the thing you do. I eat the bread, I drink the juice, it's just a thing I do. It doesn't really matter to me. It's kind of about Jesus. He sort of kind of sacrificed himself. And this is something for those who are already followers of Jesus or a great step to take as your first step in believing in him today. To eat and drink unworthily means that's oh, just another thing we do. And it's not the heart of the gospel and salvation. This is what matters. And this is why we say things like, those who trust in the Lord, they will experience his protection. May you banish evil from among us, but may you bless us as we follow you. And we pray that the peace of Christ would rule and reign in our hearts. And so as you eat and drink in a moment, I'll pray, take time you need, listen, uh, just quietly spend time with Jesus, commune with him. That's why we call it communion or the Lord's table. And take some time if you need to talk to your kids and help explain it a bit more. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus, that it's not about what we do, but it's about what you've done. Thank you that you give us peace, that we were distant from you. We were lost and hopelessly sinful, but in you we can find peace, salvation, rest, and new life. We look forward to a day when you'll return, Jesus. But until then, we remember again and again what you've done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, that we might experience the peace of Christ, peace of sacrifice, and help a lost world find it too. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Take a few moments to eat and drink.
Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. And as we remember, God, we are reminded that we all should be banished from your presence. That none of us deserve your salvation. None of us deserve your grace. And that's why we're so thankful. As we eat and drink, Lord, may you remind us of those places in our hearts where we lack confidence and trust in you. May you fill those places of our lives with faith. And may we stand confidently as we follow you, our feet planted firmly on you, not on shaking ground, but on the rock of you, Jesus Christ. As we go from this place, may those areas of doubt, those areas of weakness in our life, may we see those begin to be strengths in you. May we trust you that you can do everything you have planned for us, through us and in us. Jesus, because you are with us and because you protect us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and for joining us online. Hope you can gather with us again next week. Uh, If you're able this morning,